Hey, this morning we're going to finish up the series we've been working on these last couple of weeks as we've kind of been looking at the nature of deception, of distortions, of lies, and how our culture has kind of cert, uh, swallowed certain lies and, and deception and, and the effects that that has uh, on us. And we've kind of been looking throughout this series, kind of the big idea, big picture has kind of been is that there is this invisible, unseen world that kind of affects or impacts our our visible, seen world. That there is this invisible uh, world, this unseen world, that it kind of impacts, it influences, it affects our visible and seen world. And the enemy's, really his only tool is deception. To take the truth and to distort it and to twist it into something that it's not, uh, to just speak lies to us. And that's really his only tool. His only weapon is distortion, but it is a weapon, a tool that he uses very effectively. And today's distortion and how it impacts our culture can really be summarized in the following way. Generally, people know when they're committing a sin. They just don't like the guilt or the shame or the condemnation that comes with it. So the guilt keeps them from sinning. So in order to remove the guilt, we need to remove the guilt. And so the way you do that is you simply recast or morph sins into mistakes. To take sins and kind of distort it and to twist it into Nothing more than mistakes. Let's be honest, the word sin is kind of one of those pesky, it's really kind of an uncomfortable word, and it is a word that we really don't hear used much anymore. We don't like using it, we don't like it being used in reference to us, and again, I can understand why we are trying as a culture to erase this word from our vocabularies is because it kind of conjures up God. As parents, our kids do something wrong. We don't call them into the room and say, you've sinned. I mean, if you do something wrong in your workplace, chances are your boss is not gonna call you into his office and say, you've sinned. Unfortunately, if you get pulled over uh, by the police for speeding or maybe something much worse, the cop isn't gonna come up to your car and say to you, you've sinned. Or if the IRS sends you a letter in the mail, and I know the IRS is notorious for using words that no one can understand, you can be assured the word sin will not be found anywhere in that letter. See, if you break the rules, you've broken the rules. If you break the laws, you've broken the laws. But we generally don't classify those things as sin. Rule-breaking, law-breaking, rebellion, disobedience, that happens within the sphere of human families, business, and government. Yet the word sin, it kind of throws us into a completely different system. Sin makes us think of or makes us aware of God. The word sin, it may echo of judgment. The word sin, it kind of conjures up punishment. Sin makes us kind of think that there is some giant moral absolute or absolutes out there, and I'm accountable. 
If I've broken those laws or those rules that God has set up, then I may be in trouble. The word sin, it can make us feel bad about ourselves. It can make us uncomfortable. It can make us feel like we're condemned by God. So we equate the word sin with God is mad at me and I am a bad person. And therefore, because of that, we don't like the word sin and we don't want to use that word if we can at all avoid it. In fact, the dictionary kind of supports this whole idea. Let me read to you how the dictionary defines sin. Sin is a transgression of divine law. There it is. It invokes this whole sense of God. That's why I don't tell my children, you've sinned against me, because sin is a transgression of divine law, which kind of implies there is a divine person, God, or there is something bigger and beyond myself. The definition continues. Any act regarded as such as a transgression, especially a willful or deliberate violation of some religious or moral principle. See, the word sin implies you did it on purpose. The word sin kind of implies you knew it was wrong but you did it anyway. Who needs that? And because we don't like that word sin, it makes us uncomfortable, we've adopted a different word. A word that we're a little more comfortable with. We don't sin, we just make mistakes. Let me also read to you how the dictionary defines mistakes. A mistake is an error in action calculation, opinion, or judgment caused by poor reasoning, carelessness, insufficient knowledge, etc. So really, a mistake is just an error in action. Oh, I, I didn't mean for that to happen. It was a mistake. A, a mistake is caused by poor reasoning. Oh, what was I thinking? That's a mistake. A mistake is caused by insufficient knowledge. Well, I didn't know this was going to happen if I did that. I didn't know any better. And underneath all of that is the assumption, you can't be mad at me because it was a mistake. I didn't do it on purpose. It was an accident. Nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. So see, this is a lot better word than sin. However, there is a big difference in my mind, in my thinking, between the word sin and the word mistake. Again, sin is intentional. A mistake is accidental. You don't punish someone for making a mistake. I mean, a mistake may require restitution, but not punishment. There's another big difference between the word sin and mistake. See, sin requires forgiveness. A mistake may require an apology. You know, for a mistake, I don't have to ask you to forgive me. I can just say, I'm sorry. It was a mistake. I didn't mean for it to happen. Didn't know that was going to happen. I'm sorry. Can we just move on? See, another big difference between the word sin and mistake is also, I think, where the deception can be found. Sin requires a savior, whereas a mistake maker just needs to try harder. 
just maybe needs to improve in certain areas. Sin requires a, a savior, whereas a mistake maker, I, I, I just may need to try a little bit harder in that specific area. See, if everything I do can kind of be dumbed down and morphed to where it's just a mistake, it just makes you a mistake maker. If I'm a mistake maker, then that means I didn't sin, and if I didn't sin, I don't need a savior. See, if you're someone who just makes mistakes, then all you really need to do is just try harder. See, mistake makers are people who just need to try to do better next time. People who make mistakes maybe just need to kind of break a few nasty habits. People who make mistakes just have to try and improve. But if I'm a sinner, then that seems to be more fundamental to who I am than what I do. If I'm a sinner, then simply trying harder isn't going to fully address the issue of my sin. If I'm a sinner, then I probably owe somebody something, and I probably deserve something in return. If I see myself as a sinner, then I also see myself as someone in need of a savior. And so this is the lie that we try to live with in our culture and in our world when it comes to guilt is I'm not a sinner. I'm a mistake maker. And since I'm a mistake maker, I didn't mean to do it. And you just need to get over it and let's just move on. But if I'm a sinner, then I need a savior. And the problem with all of this is at the core of it is I know better and you know better. We know deep down, you know it, I know it, deep down many of our so-called mistakes were premeditated, they were calculated, they were intentional decisions to benefit ourselves at the expense of others. Deep down inside, you know, I know, it wasn't unintentional, it was intentional. I did it on purpose, I just didn't think I would get caught. I mean, th when you hear people apologize when they've been caught red-handed in doing something, isn't the majority of the time you, you get this sense they're really not sorry for what they did, they're just sorry they got caught. Isn't that true? And not only have you done this before, but you're hoping to be able to do it again. You know in your heart of hearts, this was more than just a mistake. It was not unintentional. It wasn't because of bad calculation or because of poor reasoning. It wasn't carelessness. It wasn't because of insufficient knowledge. You knew exactly what you were doing. And you knew exactly what you were doing the last time you did it. And you're going to know full good and well what you're doing the next time you do it. It wasn't a mistake. You and I know it was much deeper than that. Then that's where the guilt that accompanies our mistakes. I mean, what, what do we do with that? 
Well, we just tell ourselves, no one's perfect, everybody makes mistakes, I just have to try harder the next time. And, and, and doing that and telling ourselves that, you know what, it doesn't remove or resolve the guilt. And, and our reasoning kind of goes, why should I feel guilty? It was a mistake, wasn't it? Now here's the strange thing. When Jesus showed up, when Jesus came on the scene over 2,000 years ago, Jesus taught very opposing ideas. And when you hear these two opposing ideas coming out of Jesus, you kind of reason within yourself thinking those statements should not be coming out of the same person's mouth. When Jesus came along, Jesus starts teaching, and some of the things that Jesus says has the potential of making people actually feel worse about themselves. Oh, Jesus wouldn't do that. Hear me out. Jesus comes along, and he kind of takes the goodness bar, and he raises it. He takes the righteous standard, and he elevates it, so high that everyone who hears him kind of begin to feel terrible about themselves. Oh, Jesus wouldn't do that. Oh, that's not Jesus. Hear me out. Jesus comes along with a message that was so extraordinarily condemning that said nobody was as good as they needed to be. Nobody is as righteous as God's standards. As a matter of fact, Paul said everybody has fallen short of God's glorious standard of righteousness. And nobody was as holy as they needed to be to satisfy God. Jesus would make statements like that, and then he would immediately follow statements like that up by saying, God loves you. Now this was confusing to people then, it may be confusing to people now, because they're thinking, either I'm terrible or God loves me, which is it? Jesus said, it's both, you're terrible and God loves you. You're worse than you thought, but God loves you more than you could ever imagine. You're not as righteous of a person as you need to be, but God is crazy about you. And the people who wanted just to be people who were mistake makers, they didn't like Jesus because he made them feel guilty about themselves. But the amazing thing was the people who knew they were sinners, guess what? They loved Jesus and Jesus loved them because they were honest enough to say, you know what, he's right. It is worse than I thought. I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm not as righteous as I need to be. And if there's any hope in the world for me, it's not because I'm going to commit to trying harder, to do better, to commit myself, to discipline myself more. If there's any hope for me, it's not through my efforts. It's because I need a Savior. Here's how Jesus approaches this. Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 17. This is this famous Sermon on the Mount. 
And this was really kind of at the front end of Jesus' ministry. And he starts off in verse 17, and he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He said, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, if you think I'm here to kind of start something new and to do away with all of the Old Testament, he said, forget it. I haven't come to abolish or to do away with it. He said, I've come to fulfill it. If you thought I was going to come to get rid of those extreme laws or to kind of dumb it down, water it down, make it easier uh, to lower the bar of God's standard and righteousness, he said, you're missing the point. So I haven't come to dumb down anything, to do away with anything. He said, I've come to fulfill all that was taught in the Old Testament, and then I'm gonna raise, I'm gonna elevate the goodness bar, elevate the standard of righteousness and goodness. Jump down to verse 19. He said, anyone who breaks one of the very least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've said to you multiple times, when Jesus was teaching a lot of what he taught, it was shocking to people that were hearing it. And I can guarantee you that when Jesus said this, there was an audible gasp that went out from among the crowd because all along the periphery of the crowd were these Pharisees, these religious teachers of the law, and they're looking down and they're observing and they're hearing everything Jesus is saying and doing. And interestingly, you may not know this, But did you know that the full-time job of the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day was to be good, to be holy, to be righteous? I mean, that literally was their job, their full-time occupation. As a matter of fact, I think if you would have gone up to one of them and asked them, what do you do for a living? They would say, I'm good. I spend all my time just being righteous and holy. That was their occupation, their full-time function in life. So Jesus is saying to the crowd, let me just give you a parallel here. Let me tell you how righteous you have to be. He said, see those Pharisees and those religious leaders on the outside there? They may be some of the most righteous, holy people you know. Your righteousness, your goodness has to surpass theirs. Now again, the average person in the crowd who understood and knew the Pharisees and the religious teachers are thinking in their mind, game over. I don't have enough time to be that good. No matter how hard I try, I'll never, ever measure up to their standard of goodness. If my righteousness has to surpass theirs to get into the kingdom of heaven, there's not gonna be any place for me there. And Jesus is kinda like, that's bad, isn't it? I mean, 
This is way worse than you thought, right? And while he lets that thought kind of just settle over them, he kind of begins to give them some very specific examples. Verse 21, he says, you have heard it, that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not kill. And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, Jesus is beginning to raise the bar, the standard of goodness and righteousness. He says, but I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now again, shocking. The people listening to this are saying, all right, whoa, whoa, time out here, Jesus. So you're equating actually murdering someone with just thinking about murdering them. I I mean, I understand murdering someone is sin. We got that. But you're saying that if I'm angry enough to do it, but don't pull the trigger, then I'm just as guilty as if I would have actually pulled the trigger and murdered someone. And Jesus is kind of like, yeah, yeah, the the bar is much higher than you thought, isn't it? This is a bigger problem than you ever imagined. The standards and expectations of God are greater than you imagined. And again, while they're trying to comprehend that one, Jesus gives them another one. Verse 27, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. They're like, yeah, we, we, we've heard that. We understand that. Well, we're safe here. We haven't committed adultery. And then Jesus, in verse 28, raises the standard. And he says, but I say to you, anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And they're like, oh, come on, Jesus. We're out of here. I mean, I get the thou shalt not commit adultery. That's pretty clear. But you're now saying that if we've even thought of it or, or imagined it or entertained the idea in our hearts that we're guilty of sin. I mean, do you realize, Jesus, that pretty much condemns all men. Who can be that good? Who can be that righteous? I mean, I, I can't think of a guy who hasn't lived his life that hasn't at one point and another thought lustfully about a woman. I mean, if that's the standard, Jesus, if that's what it takes to get into heaven, none of us guys are gonna be there. God, you're gonna be in heaven all by yourself. Nobody's that good. And, and Jesus just, I mean, the hits The good times just keep rolling. Jesus says in verse 43, you have heard it once said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. What does Jesus do? He raises the bar. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. The people are like, love my enemies? I mean, Jesus, if I love my enemies, they'll no longer be my enemies. Besides, don't you even know or do you even care what they did or said about me? Pray for those who persecute me. I mean, Jesus, I don't even pray for my neighbors that I get along with, let alone people who persecute me. What planet are you from? If this is the standard for righteousness, if this is what God gets excited about, forget it. I mean, Jesus, you're telling me I'm a murderer just because I got angry with someone. You're telling me I'm an adulterer because I have had a lustful thought. 
That if someone slaps me on the right cheek, I just offer them the left one. If someone takes my coat, I offer them my shirt. That I'm basically a sinner if I don't love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. Is that what it takes Jesus to be righteous? Because if it is, no one is righteous but God. And Jesus kind of shakes his head and he says, yeah, I know. That's my whole point. You came to this Sermon on the Mount. You came to this little gathering here thinking you're people that just make mistakes, errors in judgment, people with insufficient knowledge who need to do better and try to improve. And Jesus said, I'm just here to try to tell you and to convince you you're a sinner and that there's absolutely no hope for you if it all rides on and depends upon your effort and your righteousness. So Jesus, he basically comes along with two messages. Message one, you're a sinner in trouble. Message two, God loves sinners and sent a savior on your behalf. Message number one, you are hopelessly lost. Message two, God sent Jesus to find you. Jesus is saying to you and to me, until we embrace that, until we come to terms with the fact that we're sinners, we are never, ever gonna be open to needing or embracing the Savior that God sent to save us. As long as you just see yourself as a person who makes mistakes, here to try harder, I think until you, we come to grips with the fact that you don't accidentally do a lot of the things you do, that that maybe there's something fundamentally at war in our spirit. As a matter of fact, Paul said, you know what? I do things I know I shouldn't do, and I don't do things I know I should do. Until we come to terms with the fact that there is a war between the flesh and the spirit. Until we embrace the fact that at our core, we are sinners. We will never acknowledge and we will never embrace our need for a savior. So Jesus comes along and he says to you and he says to me, it's worse than you thought. You're worse than you thought. The standard for righteousness, holiness is higher than you thought and no one is ever gonna get in on their own merit, their own righteousness because God is far more righteous and holy than you understand or give him credit for being. Some of you may be familiar with the story in John where some Pharisees and religious leaders, you know, the original righteous brothers, bring a woman to Jesus. She's been caught red-handed, I mean, caught in the very act of adultery And they bring her to Jesus and said, you know what, we've heard everything you said about the law and you're not here to dumb it down, you're not here to do away with it, but you're here to raise the bar and the law says this woman should be stoned. So what do you say, Jesus? Jesus sitting there, probably thinking to himself, yeah, you're right. According to the law, she does deserve to die. And then Jesus said to everyone in that crowd with a rock in their hand, he said, those among you without sin cast the first stone. Everybody in the crowd who is just a mistake maker but not a sinner, 
then you can condemn and stone this woman. And the Bible says that one by one, everybody in that crowd dispersed from the oldest to the youngest. And then Jesus looks at this woman, caught in adultery, and said, where are your accusers? They're all gone, aren't they? And the woman looks around and she says, no one condemns me. And then Jesus, the son of God, looked her right in the eye just as he would look you and me in the eye if you would ever come to that point of embracing your sinfulness, just admitting and owning up to it. He looked her right in the eye. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Here's what I believe Jesus wanted that woman and wants us to understand. Embracing, admitting, owning up to our sinfulness positions us for forgiveness and our need for a savior. Guilt, shame, desperation, hopelessness that drives you to God are good things when they lead you to acknowledge your need for a savior. See, as long as you are merely a mistake maker, you will never, ever run in God's direction. As a matter of fact, you will run away from God. As long as you're merely a mistake maker, you'll never know what to do with the guilt and the shame that comes with sin. You know what our culture does with that guilt and shame? They drink it away, they dope it away, they shop it away, they sleep it away, we busy it away in front of our television and computer, we cover it, we ignore it, we take it out on somebody else, but we never, ever resolve it. And the reason we are never able to resolve our guilt as a manifestation of our sinfulness is because that sin requires forgiveness. Nothing else will do. That requires you and me seeing our mistakes for what they really are, sin. Which makes you and I sinners. And you know what? When we embrace and we acknowledge that, it positions us as one who needs a savior and makes you and I a candidate for God's grace and forgiveness. It's partially why we celebrate communion every week. We celebrate the fact that Christ's body was broken, that his blood was shed. As a matter of fact, in the liturgy we talk about this is the blood of Christ, that it is the blood of a new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Every time you do it, do it in remembrance of me. First John 1 says that, that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's why we offer communion every week because it gives us that opportunity to, to, to do heart, spirit, inspection, to look within and to say, God, is there anything that needs to come under the blood? Is there anything that needs to be confessed? Is there anything here that I need to acknowledge as sin and then ask God that the blood of Christ would cleanse and forgive me of that sin. We don't just do it one time. I don't, I don't say to you, if you've done this once, it, it, it's good for a lifetime. It's an ongoing part of our relationship, our communion with God. 
We make mistakes. And we also sin. And for those sins, God has made a way for you and I to deal with those sins, to deal with the guilt, to deal with the consequences of that. And one of the primary ways that God does that is through the ongoing effects of the blood of Christ. And so this morning, as we, I'm gonna just invite Jason up on the platform and one of the things that they would do often in the Old Testament before going into a time of communion is it was, a, it was an opportunity for personal spiritual reflection. It would give the individual an opportunity kind of just to come before God, to open their hearts before God and say, God, is there anything Anything that I have done, anything that I have left undone, God, is there any sin in my life, God, that needs to be dealt with? And as God would bring those things to your remembrance, it would be an opportunity for us to kind of confess that. And 1 John 1, 9, which is written to Christians, it's written to the church. It wasn't written to non-Christians, non-believers, it's written to the church. It says, God says, I've provided a way for you to take care of your sins, and that is by confessing and putting that under the blood of Christ. So often so that, that Paul cautioned believers and said, don't, don't do this lightly, don't, don't take this lightly. But he said, be very, very serious, be intentional in doing this, in allowing God to inspect our hearts and our spirits, allowing God to bring to our, our mind anything that just needs to be confessed and put under the blood this morning. So this morning we're gonna kind of again just end like we normally do in worship and again as you prepare to take communion. Let this just kind of be for us what it was for the original New Testament church. Again, just a time of introspection. A time just coming before God and asking God to reveal any area of our lives this morning that just need to be confessed and for the blood of Christ to be applied to that. And in that, you will find true freedom. Father, we just again thank you this morning. Thank you for the blood of Christ. And Father, as we just confess those things, God, that we have done or said, maybe things that we've left undone and left unsaid. Father, for those times of disobedience, of just outright rebellion, Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us to deal with that. Through the shed blood of Christ, Father, I just thank you, Lord. There may be people here this morning that are just confessing their sinfulness, their sins for the first time. There may be people here doing it for the thousandth time. And yet the blood of Christ always does what it says it will do. When we confess it, we ask for God's forgiveness. The blood of Christ is there to cleanse us and to forgive us. Father, I pray for those that may be here this morning that kind of are doing this outside of a relationship with you. God, I pray, Lord, that you would just, again, just speak to their heart this morning, Father. And I just pray, as Paul said, Father, that we would come to that place, Lord, where we would just speak that word that Jesus is Lord. 
And by confessing that with our mouth, God, that you would just again give us faith to believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead. And Paul said, when we'll just make that confession, Jesus is Lord. And believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And Father, when we simply just confess that we're sinners, that we have sin in our lives, God, and again, we just ask for your forgiveness and apply the blood to that, God, that you forgive us, that you restore us, you cleanse us and make us righteous again. Father, we just thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. In his precious name we pray, amen.